If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The text is printed for you on the, uh, the next page in your bulletins. And then as you turn there, uh, let me go ahead and invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we're looking at the fourth mother of Jesus. This is, this is Bathsheba. And this is the story of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel 11. This is the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of your king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then really quick, let me read just a few verses from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Again, for our our series this Advent season, uh, we have been looking at the mothers of Jesus. These are the four women who are listed by Matthew in the genealogy that begins his gospel. This is a genealogy that sets out to connect Jesus to Abraham, who is the father of the faith. In his seed would come the blessing of all of the nations. The genealogy also connects Jesus to David, Israel's greatest king. He is the one that Israel has been waiting for. This genealogy sets out that Jesus is the bona fide, he is the legitimate, expected deliverer that God's people have been waiting for. And he doesn't just fall from the sky. He doesn't just transport into our world. Jesus is born into a very particular people and a very particular family. And we learn so much of who Jesus is and why he has come through this family tree. We learn so much of who Jesus is just by looking at these four women who are listed, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. They're all outsiders. They're all either Gentiles themselves or connected to the Gentile world, and they all have some kind of scandal that surrounds them. But all of them absolutely stand out because of the utter brokenness of their situations. They're all reminders of the salvation that Jesus brings. They're all reminders of the kinds of people that Jesus came for. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus has to defend himself because the religious leaders are are, are wondering, you know, why do you hang around the kind of riffraff that you hang around? And Jesus famously responds. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I would argue even through this list of names, we can see in between the lines um, just who Jesus is and why he came. It's all right here in this list of begats. There's so much gospel, there's so much good news even in these names because the one who has come to heal and redeem and save has been born of a people who, like us, are in need of healing and redemption and saving. I would contend that the story of Bathsheba that we just read, it, it's, it's the most broken of the stories that we've come to. Tamar maybe rivals it, but I think this is the ugliest story that we come to. This is the story, uh, more than others, that, that makes us marvel at the God who, who truly creates something beautiful out of just the ashes that we create. One of the most remarkable forms of art 
that I have seen. Uh, this is At this point, I wish we were a PowerPoint church. I, I typically don't ever wish that. Uh, but this would be maybe a, a pretty good time to throw up some PowerPoint and, and show you what I mean, so you're just going to have to Google it later. Uh, but one of the, the, the truly most remarkable forms of art that I have come across, about 600-year-old Japanese form called kintsuji. Kintsuji. It's the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. So what I want you to imagine right now is just like a black rice bowl, and it has been dropped, it has been mishandled, and so all of a sudden running through this rice bowl are cracks and, and splinters. And what the artist will do is the artist will take that broken bowl that's worthless, it's, it's, it's destined for the rubbish bin, and the artist will take that broken bowl and he will mend the cracks with lacquer mixed with powdered gold or powdered silver. And so this worthless bowl all of a sudden becomes more valuable than you can imagine. It becomes spectacular. The broken fault lines are now lined with precious veins of gold. Now there are really some spectacular pieces, but I think you know, uh, because you know I'm a preacher, why I think that's such a powerful kind of art. Because isn't that exactly what God does? We each have cracked and shattered places, and then God comes in and he mends them. But he didn't just make us as we were. No, he mends us with the gold of redemption. He mends us with his grace. That's the genealogy. That's the story of Tamar. That's the story of of Rahab, a, a Canaanite prostitute. That's the story of Ruth, who is this outsider of outsiders. And this is the story of the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba. This morning, I want to enter this story, and it's pretty familiar, I think, to many of us in this room. Some of you may not be that familiar, and that's okay, because we're going to go into the story, and we're going to come face to face with all of the cracks and all of the brokenness, and then we're going to turn to see how the gospel of Bathsheba's son, Jesus, enters with the hope of making even all of this brokenness whole again. I don't really have points this morning. I feel like that would disrupt how how we have this passage. It's a story. And and one of the things I insist, out of all of the the stories that have been put down on paper, this one is as good as anything. Nonfiction, fiction, think of all of the greats. This is one of the great scenes in history. And so we're going to enter that story and analyze it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to ask the question, which I think is a really good question, why in Matthew's genealogy... Is the wife of Uriah included? Not Bathsheba, not even the wife of David, which she was, but the wife of Uriah. All right, so let's unpack what's going on in 2 Samuel 11. It is a story that centers on David. He is the main character, and there is only one main character in this story. We see his actions, we are told his thoughts, and we hear him speak. We have very little about Bathsheba in this text, and I would suggest that's important. That's the narrator's point, is that we don't have much from her perspective, because this tragedy is about David. So right from the very beginning, the armies are off because it's springtime, and we're told at this point, this is when the kings go off to battle, but there is one king who has not gone off to battle when all of the kings go off to battle, and that's David. He remains at home in Jerusalem. Not only do we know that he has stayed home, but he is taking an afternoon nap. That maybe is okay that he took this little siesta, but then he gets up from his nap and he's just kind of wandering around the rooftop, and so he looks bored. Now, all three of those independently maybe uh, are inconclusive, but I think you put them together and you see something of a dereliction of duty already. 
He's home, not with his army. Maybe that's okay. He's taking a nap. Listen, the best of us take afternoon naps. But why is he bored and wandering around the rooftop? Well, he's being a looky-loo. And he sees a woman bathing. This is Bathsheba. We know one thing about her. She's beautiful. And David sends an unnamed messenger to inquire who she is. And she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And already, this is brilliantly told by the narrator. It Already, we have enough information that where this story goes, David is incriminated right from the beginning. How so? First of all, Bathsheba is not seducing David. I don't know if you've ever heard that line of thought, that she was a seductress. Remember, she's not bathing on the roof. She's not bathing in the middle of town. She is bathing likely in her own private courtyard. Well, how does David see her? Because he is at the king's house. He is on the rooftop. He is looking down. He's not just symbolically or functionally the top dog. He is also physically above everyone else. We're told that she is bathing, and then just a few verses later, we're told that she was purifying herself uh, ritually following her monthly period. Now, this is extremely important for a couple of reasons. One, she's not pregnant. That's going to matter for the story. But let me give you the most important insight we get from this ritual purification. Bathsheba is a keeper of God's law. Bathsheba is righteous. David is lusting after Bathsheba when she is doing something pious. She's cleaning herself ritually before God. Well, David inquires, who is this beautiful woman? And so he sends messengers and we discover even if he doesn't know her personally, he knows exactly who she is. She's the daughter of Eliam. Well, who is that? He is the son of one of David's closest trusted advisors. And she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who we find out elsewhere, is one of David's valiant warriors. This is a brother in arms. Uriah would have been one of David's band of brothers. And David treats Bathsheba like a takeout meal. He feels like Chinese food. And so he goes and he gets Chinese food. He likes what he sees with Bathsheba and he summons her. But she's not an object to be possessed um, she's identified by our narrator, not by who she, what she does, but who she is, which is she is a wife and a daughter. Who is Bathsheba so far? She's a daughter of Israel. She's part of the community of Israel. David is the king who is obligated to protect his people. Over and over in the Old Testament, the king of Israel is a shepherd. In fact, the Psalms will even praise David for being the wonderful shepherd king, Psalm 78. And and so the, the man especially who would protect Bathsheba, he's off to war. And so the king, the shepherd, he is supposed to stand in and protect the wives and the daughters of Israel. But he is a predator. He preys on her. David reenacts the fall, friends. He, he, he reenacts what Eve did. He, he saw... He desired, and he took. You could argue that's most of what our sins are. We see, we desire, and we take, and he has the power to get what he wants. She is summoned to the royal household. We have very few words from her, except when she speaks eventually to David to inform him that she's pregnant with his child. At this point, things get worse, as we read. Uh, David tries to pull off this this cover-up, right? Have Uriah come home from battle, Uriah, you've done a great job. I want to reward you. Go home and be with your wife. But Uriah can't do that. Why? He says, the ark. The Lord 
is out in the battlefield. My men are out in the battlefield. I can't betray them like that. I can't just come home and and have the comforts of life while I know what my men are doing. And David goes, okay, plan B, let's get you drunk. So the very next night, David throws a party. He gets Uriah drunk. And then even in a drunken stupor, he just crashes on the couch next to David's servants, refusing to go home. He is more righteous drunk than David is sober. David continues to descend down a horrible path of sin, trying to figure out how can we cover this up. And so he says, send Uriah to the front lines where likely this mighty man of valor will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Now let's get back in the shoes of Bathsheba. I understand that's a dangerous thing to do. We don't have much from her perspective But at this point, let's get to the the tragedy of where Bathsheba is. You can imagine, if if she is the the faithful daughter of Israel, which I really think we're supposed to read her as, uh, at this point she's pregnant with with, with not her husband's child, and you can imagine the the freakout that she's enduring. You can imagine the anxiety. You can imagine the shame that she's going through. You would think that she's been informed of this plan with with Uriah, and so she keeps anticipating that he's going to walk through the door. And he never comes. And then maybe she hears that, well, he's off, you know, David's off getting him drunk, and so she's expecting him to stumble through the door at some point, but he doesn't come home. And then the very next thing she hears is that he's dead. And she grieves over him. And she laments over him. And then David summons her a second time, this time, to make her his wife, and she gives birth to a child. How do we read this story? You can already hear how I'm reading the story. Um, it's not the only way you can read the story in terms of what you can come across, but I think the text is, is, is leading us to read the story in the way I'm presenting it. Uh, let me kind of make the case even further. So one of the most challenging things about Hebrew narrative is that it is written in a way that, that, that grants us intelligence. What I mean by that is it, it has us read these stories drawing conclusions based on past information that we have received. Let me give you a couple of really clear examples of this. When King Solomon, uh, David's son, starts to accrue lots of horses and lots of foreign wives, the narrator never comes in and says, that wasn't a good idea, Solomon. We, the reader, know from Deuteronomy that Israel's king is not supposed to get a lot, lots of horses and chariots and foreign wives. When David, at this point in the story, David has eight wives and ten concubines. The narrator never says, this was bad. We know it's bad. We know it's contrary to the will of God. That's going to inform a lot of how we think about David at this point. Now let's bring that in into the story right now. Adultery in the law of God is the responsibility of the male head of household. Think about the Ten Commandments. A man is not to covet whom? His neighbor's wife. It's addressed to the male head of household. Now, can a woman commit sexual sin? Of course, but men are called in the community of Israel to lead in such a way that the community is strengthened, that the community is sustained, that it's provided for. And so David and Bathsheba, they have an adulterous relationship because neither of them are married, but this was no illicit love affair. David is the head of the household par excellence, isn't he? He's the king of Israel. His calling is to protect not just his own wife, it's to protect everybody's wife. He knows she's not protected, 
And David believes he can do whatever he wants. And here's the kicker that I think we get in the story. At the end of our passage in 2 Samuel eleven twenty five, David says, go out and tell Joab, who's like his general, go tell him, don't let this matter displease you. And I think a wooden translation's better. Don't let this matter be evil in your eyes. I love that line. Because do you see how far David has fallen? David's basically saying, there's a new Moses in town. Thou shalt not think this matter is evil. David is proclaiming a new moral law as if he were God. Will David get away with this? One scholar writes, you know, if David had been a king of any other ancient Near Eastern kingdom, his actions would have been unremarkable. Kings do whatever they wanted to do. But this wasn't any other kingdom. It was Israel. We leave chapter 11 wondering if David will get away with this. But the final verse of the chapter says the Lord is displeased with David, and I think that's a helpful word for us. It's maybe the first application when we're wrestling through this is that at this point you have to think David is thinking, yeah, this kind of went off the rails at some point, but I think we're going to get everything to be okay now. Bathsheba, come live in my household. We're going to kind of move on from this. And this is the reminder that God sees this. God sees this injustice. God sees this wickedness. And God will deal with it. In the next chapter in 2 Samuel 12, he sends Nathan the prophet to confront the king. Think about that, right? David has, has committed all of these wicked acts, and then he invites the prophet into his court. Uh, what, do, what do you think he's expecting the prophet to say? What word from the Lord do I have, Nathan? What good word are you going to bless me with? And remember what I said, I think this is one of the greatest stories uh, ever put down on, on paper. Because Nathan goes before the king, and, and again, if you know this, it's, it's so good, right? He says, let me, let me, let me tell you uh, about uh, this guy, king. There once was a rich guy, and he had the, the biggest flurd, uh, the biggest herd of, uh, and, and flock of, of sheep and cattle and, and everything you can imagine. And then th- down the road, there's this poor guy, and this poor guy only has one little precious ewe lamb, and he loves that little ewe lamb. He bought that ewe, he, he raised it up, he cuddles with it when it gets cold, he bottle feeds it, he loves that lamb. Well, one day, there's this, this, this traveler, this person of significance comes into town, and he goes to the rich guy, and he says, will you throw me a feast? And the rich guy says, yes, but the rich guy doesn't want to butcher one of his sheep. He didn't want to butcher one of his flock. And so he goes to the poor guy and he takes that precious little ewe lamb and he butchers it. And David hears this story and every bone in his body rattles at the sound of the injustice. And he says, if this guy is real, I'm going to kill him. And Nathan says, you are the guy. This is where the King James, we need the King James. Thou art the man. You are the man. And God in his mercy breaks David. He breaks him in order to restore him. Nathan confronts David with his sins and David repents. But I believe the way this text is given to us, there is no doubt that Bathsheba and Uriah are the victims in this story. He took that precious little lamb, he took what the two of them had, and he blew it up. It is David who displeases the Lord. It's Bathsheba's never 
chastised in this narrative, and yet her life is changed due to the king's lust and power. That's how I read this. That's how I think we're supposed to read this. The next question becomes, which I think is a really good question, why is the wife of Uriah? Said like that, why is she in the genealogy of Jesus? Right, this lineage of Jesus includes so many women that aren't listed. All of the matriarchs of Israel, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, they could all be in the lineage of Jesus. And yet here, Matthew includes these four. And the one that I think really gets our ears attention is this wife of Uriah, the mother of Solomon. I think there's a particular sadness and grief looking at this list of names. Let me kind of explain why I think that's true. You can imagine the anticipation and an expectation of the arrival of the great king that everybody is waiting for. Think about last week with the book of Ruth, right? You have Naomi. She's not even desperate. She's too tired to be desperate. She's just resigned. She's struggling to have hope because her husband, her sons are dead. She has one daughter-in-law, Ruth, who sticks with her. And then at the end of the book, this glimmer of hope becomes this full-blown celebration of God's faithfulness. And we read... Obed is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Everything leading uh, to Israel, having this faithful king to guide them and to shepherd them. And David comes on the scene and everything looks good. It's not perfect, but everything looks really good. And then at 2 Samuel 11, everything does change. Because we don't just have adultery, we have a profound failure of kingship. And we know David is not the one that we have been waiting for. And this episode in particular has us all thinking about, has us longing for the better king that will come. This lineage of Jesus is a reminder that the greatest heroes in Israel's history are in just as much need of God's redeeming grace as anyone. Israel's model king, we know, right, has the most fragile feet of clay. A message that should be old if you've been part of this church for a while is that there really is only one hero in the Bible. It's Jesus. Because he is a good king. Jesus is the kind of king that doesn't send his men out to battle, but he goes to war on their and our behalf. Jesus is the kind of king that doesn't use and abuse his subjects. He's the faithful shepherd who cares for them and he protects them and he guides them and he lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the kind of king that doesn't sacrifice a loyal friend uh, for his own reputation and his glory and his good. No, he is the one that will give up his reputation and he will set aside his glory when he himself goes to die for our sins. A better king has come. That's the first point. But we still have to ask, why the wife of Uriah? As we've seen, especially from these four mothers of Jesus, they anticipate the king who's coming. He's the savior of the world. And in particular, he's he's the savior of those who the world typically casts off. And this is all represented by the inclusion of the wife of Uriah. See, our modern ears might kind of struggle with the fact that she's not called by her name like why why is she not called Bathsheba why is she not called the wife of David but why is she called the wife of Uriah and I think it's to give us pause it is to stand out it's to make no mistake that the pedigree of Jesus includes tragedy and includes profound sin 
Redemptive history doesn't whitewash over the ugly parts of history. There's no such thing as saying, well, David was just a king like all of the kings back then. No, it's that the genealogy has cracks and and fractures, and it points us to the one who will take the broken cracks, and he will fill them with his own righteousness. He will enter the brokenness as the savior and king that the world desperately needs. So the words, the wife of Uriah, remind us of the depths of the problem, the depths of sin, and the even greater depths of God's love and grace. It reminds us just how dark the darkness is and that a light has dawned. It reminds us just how much we all need a Savior. The words of the wife of Uriah tell us that God sees those who are victimized by sin. I'm sure that's some of you this morning who need the reminder that God sees it. Remember, Israel was to be a light for the nations, a magnet to the nations because of the justice and the righteousness and the goodness and the truthfulness that the nations would see Israel worshiping the Lord and following his commands. They were to be a light of the nations. Now imagine this, their faithful King David is out and and next to him, brother in arms, is this Hittite guy. Uriah the Hittite, do you see how Israel is being a light of the nations when one of David's band of brothers is Uriah the Hittite? And what does David do to the guy? He betrays him, he uses him, and he declares him expendable. Bathsheba was just an object to David. Her identity, again, not in what she does, but in who she is. She's a daughter of Israel. That's who she is. And yet, don't miss this, especially with her inclusion in this genealogy, do Boy, do we see God's restorative work. There is grace in Bathsheba's life, even amidst the tragedy, even amidst losing the child that she would bear. There is wonderful grace in this story because the end of her story is not David's sin. It's not the mess that her life became. She's dignified in this genealogy because she is a mother of our Savior. I don't know if we can say David meant it for evil, but he surely meant it for his good. But even through that, God brings about the salvation of the world. This is the the hardest thing to believe, isn't it? But I think we have to believe it. We have to believe it. It's true. God doesn't work in spite of the sin and brokenness of our lives, but particularly in them and through them. And that's not the only story we see here in this genealogy. Because Jesus is is not just the savior of those the world casts off. He is also the savior of victimizers who repent. The story of David is such a complicated story, isn't it? He is a man after God's own heart. He loves the Lord. He really does. He really loves the Lord. That to me is the difference of David and any other king in Israel is how much this love for the Lord never dies for David. David sees his sin by God's grace and and it breaks him. He cries out for the steadfast love of the Lord. He says, God, you are the God whose love doesn't quit. I'm gonna need that kind of love right now. He cries out for mercy and he receives it. And again, there there are profound consequences to his sin. The child that is born dies but not only that, I mentioned 2 Samuel 11 is a turning point. And, and I think it, it's in, in this way, the sins of the father, which so often are restrained by grace, they explode in the life, lives of David's sons. One of the evidences of the reading of how, of how David is the victimizer in this is go look at the story of Amnon and Tamar, different Tamar. 
and you will see the sins of the father explode in the sons. Taking, desiring, seeing. That's the life of Absalom. So there is a turn. And so the word for us as we come to this, to this man who's, who's broken, who's falling, as we, as we see the, the ugliness and the heinousness of sin is to recognize that and to repent of it. Because sin is ugly and it's destructive. It takes life and it doesn't give life. And yet what an amazing thing that Jesus died on the cross for David's sins. Even the greatest names on this family tree need the work of Jesus and that's the point. So do you and so do I. If you are here this morning and you think, how could God ever love me? How could God ever forgive me? This family tree is a reminder it's the very reason he came. To seek and save the lost. Jesus does best what he does best, which is save sinners. Psalm 51, David sings a song to the Lord in light of the tragedy of of the events that unfolded in our passage. And David prays that God would create on him a clean heart, and he does. And he continues to do so for those who turn to God, confessing their sins and confessing their need of God's cleansing mercy found in Christ. Jesus' family tree is a lineage of broken vessels that he has come to fill with his redemptive work. Sounds like this room, doesn't it? We too are a room full of broken vessels that need Jesus to come and fill us with his redemptive work. We're a bunch of broken vessels that Jesus has come to fill with the precious gold of his redemptive work. Matthew 1 is indeed a list of Old Testament saints. It's just a list of saints that aren't given to us to produce veneration and worship. It's a list of saints to to have recognition. See that King Jesus has come to save a people from their sin. Men, women, and children just like us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, take this word by your Holy Spirit and transform us. Lord, not that we would have a better grasp of, of a biblical story to, to, to pack away in, uh, in the backs of our minds, but instead that you would use this word to to transform our desires and our wills. Lord, that you would remind us um, through, through, even through David's sin, Lord, the, the, the danger, that snowball of, of destruction that sin is. Uh, far, far too often we can flippantly say, well, we sin because it, it looks so good. And yet, Lord, part of, of your sanctifying grace is to convince us that sin is the ugliest thing in the world. That it's the most destructive thing in the world. That it destroys our very selves, it destroys our relationships, it destroys our communion with you. Lord, it is the, the, the brokenness of this world that, that we contribute to. And so, Lord, cast our eyes to the hero of the story. Cast our eyes to the better king who has come, who has defeated sin, who has vanquished death. And Lord, would our hope be in him alone? Even the story of, of, an, of an ancient king and kingdom that feels a million years away in, in a different universe, Lord, would you use that word to bring us closer to Jesus this morning? To bring us to repentance this morning? To bring us to a place to cast ourselves on you? And it's the name of our great King Jesus we pray.
Amen.